Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. If last week marked the time when the coronavirus went from a whisper to a scream, that scream, that elevated sense of something unknown, unprecedented, and possibly terrifying, this week became the looping soundtrack to life generally. The virus seems well on its way to spreading into every corner of daily life, affecting massive dislocations in goods and services that we barely conceive of before they hit home. No American has failed to experience the virus in some fashion in the last few days. March Madness, opening day of the baseball season, and the Boston Marathon for the first time in 124 years have all been postponed or canceled. Universities from Harvard to UCLA and primary and high schools throughout the country, including all of them in seven different states and major cities, have closed. Conferences and meetings are being canceled by the score. Yesterday, a rumor spread in lower Manhattan that the city was going to be locked down. And within hours, panicked urbanites had cleaned out the shells of local supermarkets. The days and hours themselves are wrenched from normal life. And just as we convene this panel, President Trump, who previously likened the virus to a seasonal flu that few would get, has declared a national emergency. On the other hand, only a very small percentage of Americans have yet experienced the truly massive dislocations in daily life that look perhaps to be around the corner for millions of us and to endure for possibly months. So the breathlessness of current events has to be tempered by knowing that much worse is on the immediate horizon, at least for large sectors of the population. We are only at the beginning of this very, very crazy time. And of course, the virus also casts a long and deep shadow over the presidential election season, all of which sets us up for another roundtable analyzing the week's events and contemplating the likely developments of the next few weeks. And we have the perfect set of guests for that discussion. Matt Miller is a partner at Novo, a strategic advisory firm for high-stakes brand policy and crisis issues. He previously served as the Director of Public Affairs for the Department of Justice and worked in leadership positions in both the U.S. House and Senate. He's an MSNBC contributor, frequent author of newspaper op-eds, and not least a stalwart guest on this podcast. Welcome, as always, Matt. Good to be here, Harry. Natasha Bertrand, whom we at Talking Feds call Scoop for her uncanny ability to break stories ahead of others, is Politico's national security correspondent. Previously, she was a staff writer for The Atlantic covering national security and politics. She, too, is an NBC News and MSNBC contributor. Welcome back, Natasha. And finally, Juliet Kayyem is a national security analyst for CNN and the Belfer Lecturer in International Security at the Kennedy School of Government. She was President Obama's Assistant Secretary for Intergovernmental Affairs at the Department of Homeland Security and played a pivotal role there in major operations, including handling of the HIN1 pandemic. Before that, she served as Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick's Homeland Security Advisor. She is also, by dint of her expertise, one of the most sought-after, busy, 
and I imagine flat out exhausted people in the country right now. So we're really honored that she's joining us for the second week in a row to help make sense of all this craziness. Thanks very much, Juliet. Thank you for having me. All right. Up, I'd like to roughly divide our time between analysis of what's happening and what needs to be happening on the ground and then the political impact of the virus. So let's move straight away to certain operational details, starting with the enormous subject that the president didn't even mention in his Wednesday Oval Office address, namely testing. What the hell? Why is it why is it such a huge problem? Why can South Korea do 10,000 tests a day and we're a small fraction of that? And what precisely needs to happen now and did happen in other countries for us to be up to speed on testing? Well, I know just, I mean, I know the stories that have been told and I, this is probably a combination of explanations, so I'll be quick. I mean, one is just simply you know, presidents matter and the tone that they set about the importance of what's about to come matters. Uh, and so we've known the sort of Trump sort of either negligence or annoyance at the fact that there's a global pandemic happening meant that we had about two months, I'm not exaggerating here, of what can only be called squander time between what we recognized China was facing and uh, and their containment strategy and us getting ready. Decisions were made and decisions were not made uh, regarding whether, uh, one, whether we would uh, uh, take the WHO's assistance in terms of getting a kit preparation program done. And then the decisions not made, which was to prepare state and local public health um, entities to get the kits to them. And what and what's involved, Juliet or anyone? Is it simply do you have to manufacture the vaccine? Do you have do people have to put together the kits? What you know yeah. what what exactly you know phys- physical steps have we failed to take? So it's just a combination. What what I believe was the first was so first we didn't have the kits, so you have a uh, supply problem. And then the second is you had a supply, then you had a supply chain problem. So you put them together and you got a problem. The supply problem was, is in having, deciding that we were going to use domestic resources, we simply didn't have enough capacity. So we, we were sitting on eight weeks when we could have gotten the stuff delivered. Um, and now I can't explain to you, and I think it's starting to come out now, it's just what's the supply chain problem? Doctor once said to me, it's just a, such an important thing to remember. He said, a vaccine never saved a life, a vaccination did, right? I mean, in other words, you can have as much of the stuff that you need to protect people if you cannot get it into their arms or to the hospitals. Um, that supply chain problem, I think, is something that's being cured. And we're also going outside of the government system. And so private entities are stepping up, you know, an, an entire NBA team um, is able to test itself in with, within a few hours, as we saw this week. That's the challenge. There's also other elements to it that uh, probably get too technical for my expertise, but and that comes from the top. If a president had begun early January saying, I need, we need these kits out because we need to know what the denominator is. That's my way of saying simply how many right. people are exposed uh, so that we know what the fatality rate is. Uh, and then we can plan accordingly. This would have looked very different. This is a White House federal government job. And um, and there's just no excusing it at this stage. Matt and Natasha, I mean, anything to add here from your own reporting? Is, is it your sense that the kits are somewhere in the United States, but just have to be distributed uh you know and any anything that that helps explain this this you know kind of baffling basic deficiency 
It, it doesn't seem to me to be a question of distribution. It seems to me uh, to be a question of there just not being enough kits that exist. And, and I c- agree completely with, it, with with Juliet. That is a failure of the White House. You've seen multiple complaints from private entities, private labs, who have tried, who have wanted at times to develop their own kits and start manufacturing the, their own kits. And over the last couple of months, were blocked by the government from being able to do so. And it, this is the case anytime there's any kind of crisis. You go back to the oil spill crisis. You go to any kind of big crisis the government faces. When different agencies and different departments have to work together, there are always turf battles and there are always rules that get in the way. And when it's a crisis, it is the job of the White House to be paying attention and to cut through to make decisions quickly, to tell people to stand down, to waive regulations, to push forward. And and I think it's completely clear that the White House didn't do that in this case. And whether that's because of just sheer negligence and incompetence, or whether it's because the president didn't want there to be more testing because he thought more testing would reveal more positive uh, diagnoses and would hurt him politically, or whether it's a combination of both, I don't think we know the answer to, but the end result is that the White House not engineering the government to respond to a crisis until it's too late. The president just announced that within a month, there'll be 5 million tests available. I don't know whether 5 million is the right number or not, but why aren't there 5 million tests available now? They should have done this. They should have you know, oriented the government to do this months ago so we wouldn't be in this case where there's a massive outbreak and we don't have the tests to measure it. Is it your sense, Scoop, that the, that the reason for this really was that Trump didn't want to, you know, for political reasons, didn't didn't want to order test manufactured lest people think it's a bigger crisis on his watch than it actually well than than he wanted them to think so that that is what my colleague Dan Diamond has been reporting he covers the healthcare industry extensively and his reporting has suggested that the president just did not want these tests early on because he wanted to keep the numbers very low. And uh, his health secretary, Alex Azar, wasn't really pushing the president to do that because, of course, he is not known for telling the president things that he does not want to hear. So while he did tell the president, look, this could become a very serious problem, the testing issue was really not taken seriously because the president obviously does not want the numbers to balloon ahead of the 2020 election. That's part of the reason why he openly admitted that he wanted to keep people on the cruise ship off the coast of California on the cruise ship because he did not want numbers in the United States to rise um, when they inevitably came on shore. Um, So now private industry is stepping up to fill in, you know, the slow rollout of tests from the CDC. But part of the reason that things are still tough is because there is still a shortage of key chemicals that are needed to run the test. And it's becoming increasingly clear that testing guidelines early on in the outbreak were way too stringent. And that stymied the researchers in knowing if coronavirus was actually spreading. So it really was just a problem that snowballed. And now we're trying to get a handle on it. But it's it's a little bit too little too Holy late. Cow. I, so this I hadn't heard heard before. So if when Trump now says 5 million in a month or whatever, that's contingent on actually procuring chemicals that are either in short supply or non-supply in the in the states. Correct. Wow. Okay. And any other thoughts, you know, there's several aspects that I want to plow through, but about testing uh and in particular, is it clear that we are now at least where we should have been in January fully committed and engaged and although very late off the dime uh there the the focus is now concerted at the federal level to this let me just uh, because i think the answer is no and i just 
I think that we cannot either forgive or underestimate what a abysmal failure this is, um, because it's not just impacting the science. So I, I'm on the response side. So I'm dealing with a lot of localities and states that are trying to figure out how to measure this and respond. And I have come to think that it's sort of like you see a Category 5 hurricane coming off the shore, coming towards shore, and your your response is, boy, do I hope it doesn't hit my state, right? That's your only response. And so now it's here. And so one of the problems in sort of talking to people or, you know, not talking to me, but many of us, even me who expected this to happen, you know, the jolt of this week, right? The sort of just as a parent, as a, you know, as a community member, as people who work in this space, um, in terms of all the closures, that is also tied to the test kit fiasco, because what you saw happening was the failure to have valid numbers meant that mayors and governors had to quickly just assume that there was broad community exposure. And so you went from isolation, which is a much better way to think about this, right? The person's sick, they've been in contact with 30 people, those 30 people isolated, that's a much better way to deal with this. And for some period of time, it would have bought us some time. We had to quickly switch from containment strategy, like a a week, essentially, to mass social mitigation strategy because there was no validity between behind the numbers. And then you just kept hearing more and more people were getting sick. So if people were wondering, like, why did that happen so fast? It happened so fast because governors and mayors who are looking at the potential that it's going to get worse because it's already here, you know, um, in our communities need to, in the proverbial term, you know, stop the spread, you know, uh, uh, flatten the curve, all the terms that people have heard, which is just a simple, easy way of saying what we're trying to do now is ensure that need does not bump up against capacity too soon. The hospital capacity, public safety capacity, public resource capacity. And the way you do that is you make sure that the number of people who get it is spread out. Um, and so basically, and the way you do that is through social distancing, right? So that's basically what happened this week is that we quickly went from a containment strategy, which could have bought us even more time. So we lost time in January and February getting ready. We, Because we failed that, we had no time to have any sort of meaningful isolation strategy. And then that's why this week just came on like, you know, like gangbusters for everyone. That's a really, really great point. You know, that the uncertainty causes all these decision makers to have to be perhaps overly conservative. We got the call yesterday. My my three school, it's, it's small next to what many people are going through, but my school-age children are now home for at least a month, maybe two, with all the you know small to large practical implications that entails. Let, let's talk for a moment about closures, you know, from uh, businesses uh, to schools and and everything in between that we're starting to come to to grips with all you know all kinds of problems. Have we thought them through? Uh, you know, do we? Is there a, a, a primer out there, or is confusion going to necessarily reign? You know, I think this goes back to the point about the absence of presidential leadership. Uh, it is just beyond perplexing to me that all of these organizations, uh, sports leagues, private companies 
are taking action basically without any federal guidance about what they ought to be doing, uh, whether they ought to close or not. As of this day, uh, the federal government still has not told workers to stay home from work and and work from home. They can do it if they have a medical necessity, but the guidance that that private companies are giving to their their workers, I know I worked from home today, my wife worked home from home today, I think everyone I know, know pretty much did and will be for the next few weeks. The federal government isn't doing that. And again, goes back to this absence of leadership from the White House and the the sense of the White House not wanting to fuel uh, a, a sense of crisis in the country, even though we very obviously are in a crisis. And so it, it's, I mean, in some sense, it's refreshing to see um, uh, the private sector and governors and mayors step up where the president uh, has not, but there is no substitute for the president setting the tone for the country and the country knowing what they ought to do. Because in absence of that, you get kind of a, a patchwork uh, and a mismatch where some, you know, some some organizations are doing the right thing, some are not, and no one's really clear what they ought to be doing. The president is also giving remarks right now on the White House lawn, and after every person that he introduces and thanks, he's shaking their hand, he's touching the microphone, and this is someone who's been <laughs> exposed himself to multiple people who have since tested positive with coronavirus. So if he's trying to you know, give any kind of example or lead by example here, it's really not working. The people that are, you know, having that, having the president reach his hand to them are kind of looking at him like, what am I supposed to do? And then they end up shaking his hand. Right, right. But it just seems like the president himself does not know how to lead on this issue, even in the smallest ways, like, you know, social distancing. People are packed in the garden right now, um, packed next to each other, next to the podium. This is obviously something that the entire federal government government has been warning people against. Yeah, uh, this is a great point, too. And to follow up on on Matt's, it really isn't the case, uh, now that I think about it, that we're back where we were January, because there's an unmistakable whiff of panic and improvisation that's going on at the White House where they lurch from solution to solution. So one of the things that would have happened would have been, as happened, say, in Ebola, where a czar was appointed. We've seen Ron Klain on the airwaves a lot lately drawing the you know a, a marked contrast there would have been a game plan that would have been conceived of in relative calm and and poise and work through and now that doesn't exist and they they almost can't take the time to do it but rather just have to quickly um, you know, try to try to look like they're they're they've thought it through. What is does anyone know what's the practical impact of of Trump's uh, declaration that as as uh, Scoop said just happened of a national emergency? I know that it frees up more money uh, for the federal government to deploy. Although, honestly, uh, when you look at the way that the you know the House approved uh, both houses approved eight billion dollars uh, earlier in the week, and they're going to rush through legislation to help workers now, I'm not sure that a lack of money, a lack of resources, is the main problem right now. Yeah, I agree with that. I can't. I mean, I I've been trying to tweet out. Um, you know, let's not be fooled here. This is, um, you know, to all the to Matt's point in particular, is the lack of federal guidance, the lack of a steady drumbeat, the lack that of of a single person that you feel has a handle of this. So those are all those are all just basic crisis management one hundred and one. I mean, the fact that we don't even have a daily presser just about this, so that the rest of the government can go on. I mean, one of the ways that you show I've got a handle on this is. I'm going to have this person deal with this horrible tragedy. And as president, 
I'm going to, you know, chime in and, and show empathy. Uh, but you, you show that, that the work of the nation can still go on. This is a little bit different, but people, you know, people are still needing to get their work done and do things and, and, um, and think about when things get back to normal. On the other part of this, the Stafford Act, I can't tell if it's been declared, but there was a conversation um, about, you know, deploying FEMA or having Stafford Act being invoked, just, you know, as someone who lived and breathed the Stafford Act, I will tell you that doesn't change much. The The basic contours of a response are locals ex- execute, states manage, uh, Fed support, right? So it's always going to start at the local level. Fed support through money, which I think is great, but I think we that's not the problem. They also support through guidance, best practices, uh, a communication strategy that gives people hope, all of that they've failed miserably. I mean, their job is not that much. They're not the first responders. I mean, it's the it's the local public health folks. I mean, and they can't get this right. Yeah. I mean, I think certainly that, you know, at the at the level of people who, who have been doing this um, uh, and de- in a devoted fashion for years, they're, they're Trump's deep state now. Many of them have been pushed out and uh, others are cowed. Um, let me let me ask, do you have any sense? I want to go back to this Manhattan uh, rumor that happened um, yesterday. Any sense of just um, sort of areas of misinformation or overreaction, uh, th- you know, things that are being caused as a result of the w- leadership vacuum or for whatever reason, uh, where where people are not only not informed, but you mean other than from the president? And I'm serious. I'm serious because the president has said a couple different times in, in recent days that that uh, Americans who fly home from Europe will be screened when they get off the plane. And you hear from all, you know Americans who are saying they're getting off of planes and there's no screening at all. They're walking through. Or if they can even fly home, right? I think on Wednesday, people paid like $20,000 to get home immediately. And then it turned out, oops, never mind. Americans aren't affected by the by That's the right. Trend. You have on top of that, of course, him saying constantly that anyone that wants a test can get it when that's clearly not true. I, I, you know, the, 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 the rumor in Manhattan was disturbing. But as has been true the entire time he's been president, the single biggest source of misinformation in the country continues to be the president of the United States himself. Yeah, so it, it this has actually been a huge issue, not, not just with the president, who has definitely spread misinformation in an attempt to try to tamp down on the panic and try to make himself look the best way possible before the election, um, but also just by people who you know regularly try to exploit these things just in general. Um, the World Health Organization actually said that it was confronting an infodemic um, on this issue because there's been so much malicious content um, and false content that's been spread about the illness, you know, related obviously to things like bogus medicines, like gels, liquids, and powders that, that people say might immunize against the virus. You know, the fact, the idea that this was cooked up in a secret government lab in China, um, that Bill Gates was behind the spread of it, George Soros, the Italians marching the streets. I mean, all of these things um, that are trying to whip up panic among the global population, not just Americans, but obviously, as people are more and more quarantined and having to stay home and they have more time to be online, you know, a lot of these things are going to come to their attention even more. So it's something that that has come to the attention of the World Health Organization and is something that social media companies now are trying to um, tamp down on because these fake um, uh, prescriptions that are floating around the internet could really get people sick and could obviously 
make people less willing to get tested, less willing to go to the hospital if they are experiencing symptoms because they've seen something online or even from the president um, or even on Fox News for that matter that makes them think that this is either not serious or that they can take care of it themselves. Yeah, I mean, and this has actually been, it's no accident, it's been the actual playbook for governing of Trump for the last three years. So, you know, the chickens come home to roost in the worst possible practical way. Um, I, I just want to touch on a couple subjects that are around, that are possibly around the bend. And if we think um, things are, you know, relatively under control, you, you know, we have to go through these widespread social distancing because we don't know who's been exposed nor who will get um, uh, who will be contagious. But what about the sick? Do we have a, a worry about capacity to actually care for with you know available medical resources for the people who in fact will come down with the virus? Yes, I, I mean this is the as I said the the original sin. I I don't know what my numbers are, but the, I'll tell you just to put it bluntly. Our numbers are looking kind of similar to Italy two weeks ago. So if, if if my trajectory, if I'm you know thinking about the trajectory, I'm Italy two weeks from now, and I think I think those numbers are numbers that many people in the space started to see, and we're a bigger country, and we're not as organized in some ways. So so we're going to have a capacity problem. Everything from hospital to uh, public safety to respirators to beds. And we're going to have to get really creative um, in terms of a capacity to pivot um, and respond. And hopefully we won't get to the stage that um, Italy uh, was at. But let me just you know, let me just say the numbers so people know it. So today, as of today, there are currently 1,600 confirmed cases. That's probably gone up in the last couple hours and 40 deaths in the United States. As of March 1st, Italy had about 1,600 confirmed cases and 40 deaths. Italy, as of today, has 15,000 cases and 1,000 dead already, and they have more doctors and hospital beds per capita, universal health care, and one-fifth of our population. So that, I just, yeah, you know, can only be honest here, but so, so we, I hope we're wrong, and I hope, you know, I hope that you know, that, that, or I hope the social distancing works. So when you ask about capacity, two particular challenges from a, from a response perspective come to mind and very quickly. One is no state's going to help another state. And most, and Matt certainly knows this, in most emergencies, if, you know, Louisiana runs out of things because there was a hurricane, they could ask Ohio or Louisiana or Massachusetts firefighters can go over to California to help. That's called uh, mutual aid compact. That won't happen. Every state to themselves. So the only surge capacity we have now is federal. Um, if I'm a governor, if I'm a governor, there's no way you could justify, and I wouldn't. It's not a political choice. I'm not sending my nurses over to you, state next door, if I think this is going to hit me a week from now. Um, the second is just a personnel, human manpower, woman power issue, which is this will impact first responders as they impact the population. In fact, they're likely to get more exposed. Um, so you're going to lose some percentage of your workforce. That's just a workforce issue. So while in most emergencies, you have all hands on deck um, and the capacity to surge more, more workforce in terms of public health and public safety. There's going to be some percentage that either can't show up or their kids are home so they don't have flexibility. And then, you know, as we saw in Hurricane Katrina, a small, small percentage, I'm not maligning any per, uh, profession, just a small per percentage of people will not show up. They just simply 
you know, don't are too spooked by this. So you got two challenges or potential solutions, but I just raised them to sort of say, you know, we're at the surge stage of a response. Every state has to figure out what it has and how it will triage certain things. So just to drive that point home, there was a there was a great piece in the Atlantic this morning outlining what Italian doctors are facing right now. And given the statistics that suggest that we're only weeks away from that, um, I found it to be really um, remarkable. So basically, the piece was written about the Italian College of Anesthesia analgesia, which I don't know how to pronounce, resuscitation and intensive care, which is a college in Italy, and they publish guidelines for the criteria that doctors and nurses nurses should be following um, as circumstances worsen there. And essentially, they, they home in on this idea that the allocation of resources needs to go to the people with the highest chance of actually surviving. So if you're older, if you really have no chance of recovering, if there's really no hope for you, then they're going to focus their limited resources and time on younger, perhaps, patients who have a better chance of actually surviving. Um, and so the principle really is just utilitarian. Wow, I mean, it's very, really it's it's kind of brutal, but it's it really drives home the the stark um, circumstances that they're having to deal with. And there. one thing you can say about all of these measures is that what uh, the president has just um, proposed or or ordered in his current address uh, really doesn't speak to it at all. What he said is, well, we will give Alex Azar, um, the, the head of health and human services, but we'll give Alex Azar the ability to waive certain regulations uh, for greater flexibility for local hospitals. You know, thanks very much. Maybe helps a smidgen in certain bad situations, but doesn't speak to the core um, complications that that you two just have. What about you know the provision of basic goods and services? The other you know people in Manhattan immediately cleaned out um, the shelves of their supermarkets. Is there a tangible prospect of parts of the country literally not having uh, access or or um, you know to basic? literally not having access to basic goods and services that they need just to survive daily life. I don't, I mean, you can, your head can get to every scenario, but here's, I'll give people silver lining. This is not a hurricane or an earthquake. Um, This is the critical infrastructure should remain intact and our capacity uh, to, uh, uh, to uh, keep the architecture of what makes America run should should still flow. Um, it, you know, you can imagine a scenario where that's not true, and there's going to probably be certain things that are impacted. Uh, but you know, uh, water will run, um, electricity. You know, this is not. You don't have to hoard water. You don't have to become a, you know, a survivalist right now. You just need the basic provisions in your house uh, to make you comfortable and markets will be replenished uh, relatively quickly. You're just, you're going to have a workforce issue. So things may be a little bit slower, but you're not going to, we didn't see people starving to death in Italy or in China. So that's the, there's your silver lining. And I should say, you know, if people, people are nervous now, most of the briefings I've gotten um, is we're in for a really rough two weeks um, in terms of what the numbers look like. But m- most people think that we'll probably be in the reconstitution phase by May, meaning we're going to start to get the 
oil running again and, and things will feel normal or the new normal um, by the summer. I could be off on that depending on how hard it hits. And that's, you know, that's a lot of bad things will happen. A lot of unnecessary death um, and in particular of populations um, that are most vulnerable. But I think that's what people are, are at least predicting on the science side, at least right now, although everything changes. All right. Wow. What a what a uh, very um, sobering series of details to consider. Although I, I that silver lining that Juliet just mentioned, I think is a, is a substantial one. I certainly know people who have been worried about that kind of survivalist uh, mentality. So if that holds true, that's you know one fewer thing to um, to lose sleep over um, if there's any sleep that anyone is getting. Um, this, that brings us to our sidebar feature. Today, we're really fortunate to have Erwin Chemerinsky, one of the foremost constitutional law scholars in the country. He is the dean of Berkeley Law and was previously the founding dean and distinguished professor of law and professor of First Amendment law at the University of California, Irvine from 2008 to 2017. He's the author of two leading treatises on constitutional law and federal jurisdiction. He's one of the most cited legal scholars in the country uh, and and without doubt uh, a, a an authority on federal constitutional law of the, of the very highest order. Dean Chemerinsky will explain in broad strokes a very important and germane topic, namely the law of quarantine. When can the state and federal authorities order individuals to, to socially distance, to stay away from others, even over their objections, even in our litigious society? State and local governments have the police power. State and local governments, therefore, have broad power to quarantine if necessary for public health. The federal government's authority with regard to quarantine is technically more limited. The federal government has broad power to regulate who can and can't come to the country. And the federal government has the power to regulate people going between states. All of that said, when there is a public health emergency, courts are going to give great deference to the government in doing what it needs to stop the spread of an epidemic. Now, what's going to happen in the future? No one can know at this point. I couldn't have imagined two weeks ago we'd be where we are now. And I can't imagine where we're going to be two or four weeks from now. We can look what's going on in other countries. But the bottom line in terms of the law, I think, is fairly broad authority of the government to impose quarantines if it feels the need to do so. Thank you very much, Dean Chemerinsky. Let's turn now to the sort of political impact um, and in particular, the impact on the presidential um, race. Uh, there's been a lot of of uh, panning reviews, even so far, of of Trump's general um, reaction to the crisis as being uh, slow on the uptake, and his having put forward measures that really are, you know, peripheral at best. What about as things now stand, including with this speech? Has he overcome the impression that he just wasn't taking this seriously? Or is that still something that is will continue to dog him? Well, in the speech just now, he literally said, 
I don't take any responsibility uh, for the shortages in early testing and for the lack of testing that we are now seeing around the country. So he is doubling down. He, during the speech, mentioned Obama yet again and the response to swine flu and said that that was an example of a White House that was severely um, inadequate in its response to a pandemic and that you know, he's he acted early. These are all things that he just said um, during his presser when challenged by reporters asking questions about why we're so woefully behind places like South Korea and testing. So it doesn't seem like the president is willing to accept any responsibility. He said exactly as much during the speech. I, I think that's right. And I think the, pro, you know, the, the president's problem is even if he had come out and given the perfect speech uh, two nights ago, or if he had come out and given the perfect speech today, um, the problem is he can't, you know, it's not like he can keep from being dishonest when he goes back to, to the residence and gets back on Twitter or, you know, if he gets angry and calls in and talks talks to Sean Hannity on the air. It is a, you know, every once in a while, the, the staff around the White House, though not this week, can write a speech that the president can come deliver. But the problem is they can't change who the president is. And so, you know, Trump is going to be Trump and you will see him, I, I, I assume now, now that he's found this new boogeyman to go after this, uh, this just complete lie that, that the uh, Obama administration was slow to respond to swine flu um, and that thousands of people died. We know that we know the, the Republican playbook and, and it's sad that there is a partisan playbook in a disaster, but it's to over it's to overwhelm conservative media with attacks on Democrats. And that might shore up his political standing on the right somewhat. But it, it, while it can work in a political context in something like impeachment, to me, it seems hard to see how it's going to work if people are dying, if people are losing their jobs uh, because the economy veers into a recession. Um, it, this kind of you know force field of, of uh, unreality that he is able to project around himself, uh, I think, does have real limitations when you start to get to, to uh, things that aren't just his political ups and downs, but you know, real world consequences for people around the country. Yeah, I mean, there's an alter, the ultimate kind of truth, Ray. What about his refusal? You know, we just learned today that that Prime Minister Trudeau of Canada is in isolation for two weeks because his wife was was uh, exposed. Bill Barr is being tested because of his, um, you know, being in a meeting where someone was exposed. What what is he thinking politically, uh, and in in uh, refusing to be tested, which which I gather is against you know the protocol uh, and the law in the White House, but even besides it, what you know how what's his political calculus? I, I mean, it's hard to know with him. I mean, I think you know he's never sick. He's the healthiest person in the world. He's you know impervious to a virus. Um, we'll see if that holds over the next couple of days. Certainly a lot of pictures of him around people who are now positive. So, you know, he may be lucky, but, you know, leadership, I mean, we sort of given up on, I, I, I've sort of given up on the Trump should, you know, sentences that we sort of done now. And so I think one of the things is, you know, um, uh, leaders model uh, or should model behavior. And he's clearly modeling the, I think the way he behaves is how he believes this what he actually thinks about what's going on in other words his casualness is actually um in terms of his own physical security is uh, a, a model he is modeling for what he believes reality is and i just have to say you know i think then you know on the politics of this you're just seeing really interesting 
behavior by Republican governors and Democratic governors and Republican mayors and Democratic mayors about what is go- about the reality. You know, this is a little bit like climate change in really, um, um, you know, speed, you know, on, on speed. Um, yeah, I mean, a, Republican mayors get climate change. They may not say it, but they get it and know that their cities have to adapt. This is the same right now. You're seeing, I mean, look at De- look at DeWine in Ohio. He has one of the most aggressive social distancing um, initiatives going on right now, and they only have five cases. So now it seems to to me that the that Vice President Biden, who remember had a had a campaign dead in the water what three weeks ago and became the presumptive nominee only this week uh, has acted to draw a marked contrast with um, with Trump in tone in substance in specific um, uh, proposals in the way he he's tried to harness the spirit of the American people how is that? sort of working for him and you know in is it is in for all the terrible calamities of the um the virus itself uh, have they been in some ways or do you do you see them in some ways as actually um improving his prospects for election in november um, you know, obviously Biden is is not yet the Democratic nominee. He is presumed to to be that, but he still is, you know, having to fend off Bernie Sanders. He is still, um, you know, fighting for the nomination. So he his his comments and they were competing with Bernie Sanders yet again because Bernie Sanders gave his own speech about coronavirus. Um, did of course seem more presidential and more focused and you know more calming than the president himself has seen and I think that's definitely been a huge positive for him because it's been it's shown the American people the contrast between the type of president Biden would be and the the commander in chief that we have now um, so during Biden's speech he, you know, released a litany of proposals and promises, um, you know, called for Congress to enact paid medical leave, uh, said that he, you know, really emphasized, um, you know, the, 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 the resources that we have and the scientists saying that we need to heed their advice instead of making this political. So he's definitely struck the right tone, how much of a difference it will make because, you know, Americans aren't really that interested in politics right now remains to be seen, but it was certainly, it was, it was opportunistic. Um, and moments later, I think Biden sent out an email kind of, you know, asking for fundraising money off of it, which turned some people off. Um, so it's, they're still trying to strike this delicate balance between responding to everything Trump does and says, um, while at the same time trying to reassure the American people that this is what we need to do away with. We need to get rid of the president who is really not um, coming up with, who's really not, it's not, the American people's interests are not his interests, that he's just trying to bolster his reelection chances, um, while at the same time showing that they are the ones best prepared to, to deal with yeah, this. Yeah, I mean, it is a really tricky two-step he has to do. Matt, well, how do you think, what, what about his prospects for securing the nomination, though? Do, don't the... Doesn't the virus in some way make it harder for Sanders to, you know, get back up on top? Yes, although I think that was true anyway. I, I think the nomination is, is all over with the shouting. And to me, it looked like Bernie Sanders knew that the, this week in the, the speech he gave the day after the the, the election results. I, I thought 
Joe Biden gave two really important speeches this week. One Tuesday night uh, after he won in uh, Michigan and Mississippi and several other states. And then uh, again on Thursday in the speech uh, on the pandemic that Natasha referenced. And what was so important about them is that, you know, he was set, I thought, selling two things. Uh, On Tuesday night, he was selling decency. And on Thursday, he was selling normalcy, uh, which seemed like the kind of minimum things you would ask of a president, um, but are such a contrast to what we see from Donald Trump the other day. And and I think it was, in a way, the speech at Tuesday night especially, it wasn't just that that he was selling himself as a decent person in uh, in contrast to Trump. In a way, he was attacking the heart of Trumpism. If you go back to Trump's campaign and then all his governing, the thing that has been central to his appeal is telling people, you need someone like me to break through the swamp in Washington, to run over these bureaucracies and, and kick Democrats around, even kick Republicans around at times. You need someone a little bit indecent. You need someone that's not normal. And what Biden, I think, was saying in the speech Tuesday and then less over on Thursday is not only is that not true, but the opposite is true. And when you look at how Trump has run the has run the response to this crisis, it's his lack of decency that has prevented him from facing up to the problem and orienting the government because he's too worried about himself instead. And I, I thought that was very well done and, and pretty powerful as a political message. I mean, I would agree with that, and I also think the politics of this are really interesting. Um, on the state and local level. I just think, you know, we've spent three and a half years sort of focused on, you know, every waking moment of this man. And just, you know, I mean, you know, to Matt's point, it's just, you know, it'd be nice to have a president, whatever you say about Biden, I just don't think I'm going to be thinking about him that much, you know, and that's like, actually, that would be the greatest president of all time, right? Um, But, you know, I also think um, Biden just presented a way of calmness in the storm that you're seeing also played out, I think, really pretty effectively. I've been really impressed by Cuomo. I don't know his politics. I don't live in New York. So others may have different opinions or um, Inslee um, out West, um, uh, California, DeWine. I mean, you know, I think you're also seeing um, a sort of come to the middle when things are really bad uh, being played out on the state and local level. And I think that's refreshing as well. It's sort of federalism sort of comes back after three and a half years of thinking there was only one branch of government and only one man in government. That That's a really great point. And I think with that, we have to, we have to leave it. This will be playing out for the next several weeks. I hope all of you can return um, all right. We, we have as our final feature here on Talking Feds, our, the five words or fewer segment where in which a listener um, writes or suggests a question and the feds each have to answer in five words or fewer. Today's question comes from listener Samir Singh, who asks, who calls the ultimate shots about virus related action in the event of a conflict, local, state or federal authorities? Or the courts. Um, five words or fewer. Anyone? Uh, so I think I understand the question. So I can go for. I can say local execution, judicial resolution. That's how it works. I think I understood the question. Yeah, I think you did exactly. And in fact, it's the mantra. One of the one of the many good mantras you've been um, repeating of late, uh, Matt. Uh, maybe my response will be, uh, I agree with Juliet. <laughs> That's the best response ever. <laughs> okay. Natasha? 
Scoop, what do you got? Um, yes, I agree. I agree with, with <laughs> Matt and Julie. All right. And I'll, I'll embellish a little. Some uncertainty, what Juliet said. <laughs> this may be, this may be, you have to, you have to tweet that out. <laughs> That's all I, you guys, I've, I've gotten further with the three of you than I've ever gotten with my kids. This is my favorite podcast ever. <laughs> All right, you can. we won't stop you if you want to tweet that out. Thank you very much to Juliet, Scoop, and Matt. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod. To find out about future episode and other Feds-related content, you can check us out on the web at TalkingFeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts. And if you like, you can become a supporter uh, for $5 a month, which we're very grateful uh, for because uh, it defrays our considerable expenses. And you will see there... Um, much exclusive content only for supporters, really a wealth of stuff. We um, don't simply put post outtakes, but have original conversations. Um, submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers or at least educated speculation. The feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jennifer Bassett, Anthony Lemos, and Rebecca Lowe-Patton. David Lieberman and Rosie Phillips are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Sarah Philippoum and Sam Trachtenberg. Thanks very much to Dean Irwin Chemerinsky for uh, explaining about the law of quarantine. Thanks, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Fez is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.